0: Hello, hello, and welcome to the Holistic Fitness Podcast, where you'll learn how to get your goals without burning out. I'm your host, Laurie, and this show isn't just about movement and nutrition. You probably already know that exercise and nutrition is important for your mental and physical health and well-being. It's also about stress management, mindset, shedding those limiting beliefs, and some of your childhood trauma while you're at it. Today, I'm super excited to speak with James O'Hara. James is a nurse practitioner with a passion for evidence-based individualized medicine. He utilizes an integrative approach that combines lifestyle interventions, supplementation, and medications when indicated to empower patients to feel better, live longer, healthier lives. How are you going tonight, James?
1: I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: I am so excited to have you on. I've been following you on the socials for about a month now and I just love some of the stuff that you post and I love that you're bringing that integrative approach to medicine. So super excited to have you here. Just let everyone know here tonight, you know, I feel like whenever you get into some sort of you know, integrative medicine or alternative stuff, or fitness or nutrition or whatever it is—it's for a specific reason. You know, there's there's been a trigger for you to go on that path to want to help people in this very specific way. So, how would you get into what you're doing today?
1: Yeah, so my journey into healthcare and medicine actually started right out of high school. I went into uh, a nursing program uh, where I got my associate degree in nursing, which is uh, what you know as an RN. You know, probably most people that. Uh, individuals, listeners are familiar with, have an RN degree, and they usually work in the hospital. Uh, And that was the path that I took. And I had a lot of really good uh, instructors, a lot of good teachers, uh, mentors. And I think that really helped me to excel in that. And um, even backing up, I guess, before that. So actually, my first start in medicine is when I broke a lot of bones growing up. So I was on the patient side at that time. And one of those experiences was really profound for me. Uh, I developed a complication after a fracture called compartment syndrome. And for the listeners, this is a a swelling of the tissue um, in a muscle compartment is as it's called. And when that happens, you have pressure that gets put on the muscle, pressure that gets put on the nerve and the arteries, and you lose blood flow, cause nerve damage, uh, lose muscular function if it's not corrected. So Um, The hallmark symptom is excruciating pain. Uh, Fortunately, I had a very good mother who um, was aware that this was going on, uh, got me into a hospital, and I had a very good surgeon who performed the surgery called a fasciotomy, where they essentially uh, make an incision into the skin of the muscle uh, called the fascia, and it relieves that pressure and the blood flow is restored. The uh, the nerve is not being compressed anymore. Uh, And very fortunately, I don't have any sequelae or uh, negative consequences of that to this day, aside from some scars that remind me I was very lucky. So that's my real first start. And after coming out of nursing school, I was a perfect fit for orthopedics, uh, given that I broke probably seven or eight bones growing up. And it wasn't so much like fixing fractures in the hospital. Most of that stuff is done outpatient. Uh, It was mostly joint replacements. um, And those are still being done very often. And what I really liked about that was that people Came in and they had this sense of hope. So, if someone has like degenerative changes in their joints, they have arthritis, you know, that pain is getting worse and worse every day, every year, very slowly. And then when they come in and they're having this procedure, they've been, you know, really excited. They've been doing their pre surgery exercises. They want to have a great outcome. And they, Realize that there's going to be pain after surgery, but many patients tell me when they come out of the anesthesia and they're walking around on their new joint that there's pain, but it's a different pain. Um, And that's because they know that it's going to get a little bit better each day instead of continuing to get worse. So that's one of the concepts that I try to inspire in all the patients that I talk to even now uh, is just to inspire hope um cuz i believe mindset is a very underrated tool for optimizing somebody's health uh, just like you alluded to in your podcast intro so that's probably the first half of it and just some of the concepts that i think have you know started started me in this direction
0: wow how do you you know for the for the listeners that maybe aren't in America, nurse practitioner isn't a super known term in Australia, at least for me, but essentially a nurse practitioner is like a step up from a nurse and that y'all can give medications and, but like a kind of, not a doctor, like a doctor is like a whole different medication. Am I right? Am I right there, James?
1: Yeah, that's correct. So I, I worked as a nurse for a while as the the track typically goes, um, Individuals work many thousands of hours as nurses before, the, if they decide to go on to a nurse practitioner program. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not a physician. Um, I, d- I do a lot of the same things, order a lot of the same tests, prescribe the same medications that a physician would, but I'll never be doing surgery on somebody or um, you know more specific things like uh, colonoscopies or things like that that are specifically for physician roles. Um, And my degree is considered a family nurse practitioner. So I see, you know, I can see all age ranges, although right now I have my practice just with um, adult patients. Um, Mm. And what really inspired me to go from, you know, being just an RN in the hospital, um, fast forward a few years, I'd been in a float pool position. uh, Basically, you go to every unit of the hospital, whatever unit is short-staffed, they don't have enough help there. So I like that people were typically very happy to see me because they were not short-staffed or less short-staffed whenever I showed up. Um, And you get good at a lot of different things. Um, You get exposed to a lot of different disease states, you know, mental health, cardiovascular disease, um, kidney issues, diabetes, all these sorts of things. And you become really well-rounded, or at least I feel like that's how it worked for me. Uh, but then i landed long term on the cardiac unit uh, because i got really familiar with it um really enjoyed it um and seeing all the consequences there um uh, like you know people having strokes and heart attacks and open heart surgeries you know those things and there was some point where it all clicked and i was realizing you know these things are like 80 to 90% preventable um and that's backed up by the data on the cdc website with just how big of an impact our lifestyles have on cardiovascular disease, talking specifically about plaque buildup in the arteries. So that was really like empowering for me to know that there's things that I can do to prevent these things later in my life. Um, And then knowing that I could go back further my education and also empower other people in the same exact way.
0: Mm, I love that. So It's a very, very much like healthcare industry, medicine, and very much react, like what I would call reactive healthcare is like what you would initially be doing. But then obviously, you've seen all these preventative things. And something I observed, I was a health writer at the start of uh, the pandemic. And I know one of the early stage studies done on one of the hospitals of the top risk factors of. I don't even know if I should approach this topic, but of everything that happened in 2020, one of the top risk factors in the early stage studies was obesity. It was like number three. It was over over 70 years old, then it was over 60 years old, then it was obesity. But obesity wasn't really being reported on in the mainstream media until 2021. So I'm really curious, well, from what I observed anyway, I'm really curious on your perspective of how you balance being in such a medical field where everything needs to be quantifiable with the preventative health aspects of good nutrition, good mindset, good sleep, and good fitness. How do you kind of balance that?
1: Yeah, I mean, there is going to be objective data for many things, most things in medicine. And sometimes those measures are better than others. There are tests that are more sensitive. There are tests that are more specific. Uh, If we're looking at just somebody's weight in general, Um, What's commonly used there is the body mass index, which is an okay test. Um, It's not going to be great for everyone. Uh, A couple of examples would be if I have someone who is, let's say, 65 years old, they have a normal BMI, but they have a very low amount of muscle mass. They're going to show up as a healthy BMI when I know that that person is really more leaning towards sarcopenia, which is just a medical term for not enough muscle mass or kind of wasting away. Um, and is at risk for you know, falls, frailty, um, fractures, and all those sorts of things. Um, and on the opposite end of the spectrum, you can have someone with a really significant amount of lean body mass. You know, think of like a, a power lifter or a bodybuilder, um, and they cannot—they will not necessarily have the sequelae of you know, being overweight or obesity if they are also metabolically healthy with that amount of lean mass. So it's. You know, not a very specific test, but it kind of gets you in the ballpark. And if I'm looking at the general population in the United States, I think it's like 70% of people are at least overweight now with a BMI of over 25. So, um, you know, there is this sort of movement where there's like, you know, health at any size. And um, I think that could be misleading for some people. Um, I think it is reasonable to say that you can improve your health at any size. um, But the, the sort of illusion that, you know, regardless of what your BMI is, that you can be healthy. It doesn't align with the objective data. Um, and if you dig deep enough, you'll see you know, most most likely insulin resistance. That's probably the easiest thing to define on blood work in these individuals who may have other markers that would indicate they're healthy, they don't have high blood pressure. Um, but more than likely, they're still going to have uh, insulin resistance happening.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think the specific study I looked at was a BMI higher you know, higher than 40, which obviously is quite, quite high. Um, But I love that you broke that down of there could be older people that have sarcopenia or there could be people who lift a lot that obviously on the scales seem very obese when they're not. I'm really curious to break down like how things are tested. So I saw this interesting thing recently. I'm not sure if that's true, but that most of the intermittent fasting studies have been done on men. Can you talk more about the representation of women in in studies in general?
1: Yeah, and that's a great point. This is something that historically, um, even if you go back to not even human studies, but animal studies, that uh, female mice are underrepresented because they have their hormone fluctuations and it just you know messes up all the data, is what the researchers would tell you. Um, and probably to some degree, that's the same reason that they've been excluded from Studies in humans, just because you know, there's more variables at play. Um, You know, on on many levels, women are more complex, um, which makes you know discussing the hormones even more fun, in my opinion. But yeah, historically, they have been um, underrepresented. Um, An example that I give, uh, just talking about you know sexual health, if you look at you know Viagra, which was a you know a wonder drug for men when it came out, you know, it was only about five thousand men that were enrolled there. Um, and before it got the FDA approval. And at this point, there are you know over 8,000 women that have been studied up to two years on testosterone, usually testosterone creams for improving libido with good data to support its use. And there's still not been an FDA approval there. So you can kind of see examples of this all the way going back from the animal models to human studies. And even when there are human studies, you don't see them carrying uh, the same way. And I think the tide is starting to change there. Um they're also you know adding in more um, female you know rodents uh, into the preclinical models from what I understand. Um, they're starting to kind of equalize those, but it hasn't quite caught up yet. But I am optimistic about the direction it's heading.
0: yeah, you raise a really great point there because i've I've heard also that, you know, the nine to five work week is based off like the male hormone cycle. And I totally feel that. And apparently women are meant to have a 28-day hormone cycle because some days I'm crazy productive. And then the days leading up to my period, I just want to chill. Like, I just want to relax. <laughs> um, so do you feel as though women are being overlooked in traditional medicine because where it's harder to quantify our hormones?
1: Possibly. Um it's an interesting question. And it, it may not just be the, you know, quote unquote, sex hormones. Um, women actually have more testosterone. Most women have more testosterone in their bodies than they do estradiol, which is not a well-known fact, but it, it is a fact there. Um, when you get into things like, you know, menopause, or if someone has a very low testosterone production, that can be different. Um, But as far as when you look at uh, thyroid disorders, um, or any autoimmune condition is going to be more common in women. So, like screening in traditional medicine for thyroid disorders is very rarely done. Uh, And when it is done, it's usually just a TSH. So, these people can have what's called secondary hypothyroidism or an underactive thyroid where the TSH is normal. And that's not the majority of cases, but it is a case that is going to slip through the cracks. Uh, And we're looking at something like a 15% lifetime uh, occurrence rate, prevalence of a woman developing hypothyroidism. Actually, that's for the general population. It's going to be even a little bit higher for women, especially women whose mother or grandmother had a thyroid problem or women who have autoimmune conditions that run in their family all those things are going to, you know, increase the potential for this happening. And of course, age is, you know, going to be one of the strongest risk factors for something like that developing. Um, but okay. yeah, I, do, I don't know exactly how to turn the tide to where, you know, this movement and research translates into like more testing being done um, because there is some resistance to, you know, what traditional medicine would call over-testing, um, and there could be good arguments for and against this. You know, some people will say, "Well, if you have a test and it's a false positive, that that creates unnecessary worry and stress." Um, and other people will say that you know, having that d- health data is the most important thing, and you know, everyone should have access to that. And I lean a little bit more towards empowering people with data, but it also depends on the individual patient. So some people want to know, some people don't. Uh, if you look at the um, the strongest uh, genetic risk factors for Alzheimer's uh, group of genes titled APOE, not everybody wants to know that. Um, some people mm. just want to live their lives, continue on, um, and not have that in the back of their mind, not have any anxiety around it because, you know, what would they change anyway? They're already eating healthy, already exercising, those sorts of things. Um, so it depends on the person and and we really take a, an individualized approach.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. How do you balance data? Because data is not always available, you know, for specific groups and experimentation with your clients. So, do you ever like are your recommendations always based on data, or do sometimes you try things out?
1: Yeah. So, if I'm starting someone on a supplement or medication, I you know always have human data. Um, the one exception there may be. Um, you know, there are some supplements that have been used for hundreds of years or thousands of years in, um, traditional herbal medicine and those sorts of things have, I guess, their own data sets, although it's just anecdotal. Um, and then there are no exceptions. So, you know, there are people who, you know, there isn't specific data for this, but things that make sense from a, you know, mechanistic standpoint. So an example this may be a you know, you know, female that we have established who has low testosterone. And you know, this is in menopause, so it, it's not an issue of anything secondary. The, the ovaries have just essentially failed. The theca cells are no longer making testosterone. And, and that woman, uh, maybe she is prone to hair loss, for example. Um, although there's not great data on injectable testosterone for women, it has been studied Um, And the cream is going to create more DHT, uh, which is the hormone responsible for male pattern baldness. Also causes um, hair loss in females that are sensitive to it uh, because you have more of that enzyme that converts testosterone to DHT in the skin. So although there's not great data on the testosterone injections, I don't have 8,000 women that have been studied with that. I do have 8,000 women that have been studied on testosterone cream. And I know that I can put the blood level with a pretty good degree of accuracy, exactly where it needs to be, start very low, and then avoid some of that DHT conversion without having to add in a medication, an additional medication, like a a DHT blocker, like a finasteride or a dutasteride. So that's an example of when you might deviate from evidence and and guidelines. But in general, um, you have large populations to look at and draw your treatment plans and build things out stepwise from that.
0: I love that. A data-driven, individualized approach. Talk to me more about the testosterone. So something I've observed in women, I work with a lot of women in the fitness industry, generally going through weight loss. And testosterone and that menopause kind of stage, I do observe it being more difficult for people to lose weight and build muscle mass. But I am curious about your thoughts on how you help people navigate that change as testosterone lowers so that they can increase their lean, you know, or skeletal muscle mass.
1: Yeah. And actually talking about, you know, menopause and perimenopause is a discussion that women can have at any age. Um, like, they may go to their primary healthcare providers here, and they'll be like, "Well, you're, you know, you're 25 years old. Why are you thinking about this?" Um, but you want to have a plan in place so that you can be, you know, proactive and kind of know what approach you're going to be taking. Uh, the average age is 51, so you know, 51 is not the time to have that first conversation. Uh, just like if you, you know, plan on retiring at a certain age, you want to plan for that you know, beforehand. So uh, women, on average, will have you know, about 10 or 15 pounds that they put on. Um, and they're going to lose some lean body mass and add some body fat mass. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, so progesterone is thought to increase the temperature a bit. So women have a lower temperature, they're no longer getting that progesterone spike in the second half of the menstrual cycle. Um, they're going to be burning fewer calories. So that's a small effect. The estradiol levels are going to essentially, you know, fall off of a cliff. Uh, they go from an average of about 100 to 150 down to very close to zero in most cases. Um, and that causes insulin resistance. And that term gets thrown around a little bit. So to kind of unpack that, the main thing that I'm concerned about with insulin resistance is um, you know, that that tends to be inflammatory. You're going to be less able to shuttle glucose or sugar into the muscles and stored as glycogen. And instead those um, sugars are going to convert to fatty acids and be stored as body fat. To what degree of that effect? It's hard to say exactly, but it's another small effect. Uh, And then you have the uh, drop in testosterone. Uh, And, that is going to lead to a decrease in lean body mass. And the decrease in lean body mass, secondary to lower testosterone, lower estradiol, is probably the biggest lever in terms of, I changed nothing and I gained 10 pounds because I believe that you're you know, burning less fuel now because you have less lean body mass. So we have to correct that balance, You know, put on that 10 pounds of lean body mass again, and you're going to be burning about the same number of calories. Um, And another thing is, like I said, you know, the thyroid, that's going to increase with age. So much more likely to have a thyroid problem at 55 than you were at 25. So there's a lot of factors and a lot of those things. And you can measure all of those in blood work and then track them as you build out your plan to correct those things.
0: Mm what sort of things let's just say somebody hasn't planned for their retirement so so to speak they're 51 they come to you you've done all the blood work they're going through menopause what does that plan of action look like like what are the foundations to preventative health at that, that stage
1: yeah so looking at what they have done up to this point in terms of you know cardiovascular disease being you know Largely preventable because at 51, um, most people are not going to be super high risk for having a heart attack or having a cancer. But you know, have they been a lifelong smoker since they were 16 years old? In that case, you know that person needs to be screened for you know lung cancers and other cancers if they have the resources to do so. Um, you know has that person had any sort of imaging of the arteries that supply blood to their heart? Because if they, you know, have been, you know, not planning and and burning through their health, burning through their money up to this point, then, you know, we'd be to make sure that they don't have issues there. If they do, more than likely they will, then you want to, initiate a plan you know some medication to stop that buildup of plaque and and stabilize it also so those are a couple of things as far as the you know the hormones um, you want to make sure that you have um, successfully navigated through the perimenopause and now you're on the other side you know considered menopausal uh, because the estradiol levels can be wildly unpredictable during perimenopause so uh, you know, a good way to you know have an upset patient is starting them on estradiol and perimenopause, and then their estradiol level surges. At the same time, you're giving them more estradiol, and then they have you know swollen, painful breasts, uh, bloating, all sorts of things that make people unhappy. So once you're on the other side there, then you can have a discussion about risks and benefits, just like with any treatment. How it should be, because there are risks and there are benefits, and um, here recently, the United States Preventive Services Task Force published a recommendation against the use of hormone replacement therapy for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease and bone mineral density loss, osteoporosis. And it, it's really interesting because they're looking at estrogens and progestins that no one uses anymore. I, I shouldn't say no one uses because I'm sure there are people out there prescribing them, but people are not prescribing uh, medroxyprogesterone or conjugated equine estrogens in large degrees. So the interpretation there should be, you know, don't use these hormones for hormone replacement therapy uh, because they do have a significant risk of you know, increased risk of stroke, blood clots, um, and, and probably the medroxyprogesterone is the problem there. But if you use the bioidentical progesterone, just like women were formerly producing and you use a, a transdermal form of estrogen, like a patch, um, and testosterone, if it's needed, you know, I, I don't you know, have a cookie cutter approach where everyone gets the same exact thing. Um, but testosterone, if it's needed, then you have a really good way to shift that balance back, improve quality of life, prevent bone mineral density loss, um, Potentially maintain better cognition as you age because, you know, women all the time will talk about how they're forgetting things now. Yeah, they've gotten to menopause and I'm rereading the same page in the book over and over again. Um, And it's really powerful when you can, you know, safely improve somebody's quality of life to a, a large extent.
0: Hey, Holistic Fitness Fam, a quick message from one of our sponsors, Ned. As you all know, I recommend good nutrition, movement, and stress management practices before supplementing so you know what type of supplementation that your body actually needs. For me, I supplement with very few products, but Ned is one of them. I'm a type A, high energy, ambitious business girly with massive goals. And sometimes I honestly just need to chill out and relax a bit. I've found that both Ned's de-stress and sleep blends fit in with my busy lifestyle and ambitious goals. But I was honestly not a big fan of CBD products before trying Ned, mostly because of the culture surrounding weed. I just didn't want something that was going to alter my state of mind so that I became much less of a goalgetter getter or less ambitious. That was until I learned about full-spectrum hemp and their benefits. NED blends a chock full of premium CBD and a full-spectrum hemp of active cannabinoids. NED's full-spectrum hemp oil nourishes the body's endocannabinoid system to offer functional support for stress, sleep, inflammation, and balance. These products are science-backed, nature-based solutions that offer an alternative to prescription and over-the-counter drugs. All of Ned's full-spectrum hemp oil is extracted from USDA-certified organic hemp plants grown by an independent farmer named Jonathan in Colorado. I'm obviously a big fan, but don't take just my word for it. Ned CBD products have over 2,000 five-star reviews, and they work with incredible partners in the medical field like Dr. Caroline Leaf, Dr. Christian Gonzalez, and Dr. Will Cole. Ned is providing Holistic Fitness podcast listeners a very special discount. If you'd like to give Ned a try, listeners get 15% off Ned products with the code LORILEE. L-O-R-I-L-E-E. Thanks Ned for sponsoring the show and offering a natural remedy to bring balance to so many people's well-being. Something you mentioned earlier was herbal herbal, um, supplementation. What have you noticed when prescribing people with traditional more medicine, uh, Western medicine versus the herbal supplementation?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I tend to favor lifestyle changes first. So if I have someone mm-hmm. with, uh, let's say, your triglycerides are high because you're insulin resistant, um, then my inclination is not to say, well, you need to take more fish oil to bring those down. But, you know, why are you insulin resistant? So we're sort of getting to the root cause there. And a lot of times that's going to come down to the calorie balance, um, inactivity, those sorts of things. Um, It's interesting looking at the perception of medications. Um, The perception of some prescription medications like the statin class, which I don't believe are inherently good for everyone or evil for everyone, um, they're perceived to have a very high rate of side effects. Uh, and in some people, they do have serious side effects, but there are some interesting studies where they randomize people to a month of placebo pills, a month of the actual pill, a month of placebo. Um, and the side effects are you know, unpredictable. Uh, and it appears to be driven by what we call a, a nocebo effect, where people will be more likely to report something. Um, and they are truly experiencing it. It's not that these people are you know, making it up, uh, but it's a phenomenon when certain medications get a you know a negative reputation. Uh, same thing when medications or supplements have a positive reputation. So supplements in general, even though they can have side effects, are perceived as having less side effects. So if I start someone on a just pick a random supplement and a random medication, I would say that the person taking the supplement is less likely to experience side effects because there's less of a you know, perception. There haven't been. 50,000 people studied taking this supplement um, that reported nausea, heartburn, diarrhea, you know, all the things that are rattled off at the end of these medication commercials. So it's a really interesting um, dichotomy there. But what you're trying to do is accomplish the same thing. There's a you know, specific goal that you're trying to address or problem you're trying to resolve. And you're just using either a prescription or a supplement to get there. Um, and it's just about re- just about using the right tool for the job.
0: Mm, for sure. I love that. And I love that you start with lifestyle first. Personally, I I was on antidepressants when I was in my early 20s because I was depressed. like I was having my quarter-life crisis, other stuff going on. And I remember being so resistance, resistant to it. But the cool thing about medication, it helped get me from a 1 out of 10 to a 3 out of 10 so I could do the exercise, so I could do the things in my life that would help get me off antidepressants and it wasn't a forever thing. I think like a lot of the people listening to the Holistic Fitness podcast, they know they need to exercise. They know that they need to have really great nutrition, but it's the mindset. It's the... Actually, like executing on it because they've got so much stress in their lives. Do you have any clients that you work with that it's really the stress management side that they need to focus on? And what sort of advice do you give them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I have a lot of men that come to the clinic and they think they have a testosterone problem uh, and they really have a stress problem. You know, so a, a a quick way to test this is to think of, you know, do you have um, issues with your libido, whenever you are on vacation or you're off work, this and that, you know, you have a babysitter and they're like, well, no. Uh, and then it's like, okay, so you only have this issue when you have these stressors going on and, and they're not adequately managed. And then, you know, many times the testosterone level is you know going to be in that upper 50th percentile being very unlikely to be actually contributing to the symptom they're experiencing. Um, and, you know, the, the SSRIs are a great example of, you know, a medication that has a definite time and purpose, you know, saved countless lives and, and help people to kind of dig out of that hole of depression. Uh, so if I have someone with like severe depression, and I'm just like, Oh, well you just need to eat better and exercise, take some vitamin D uh, that person is either going to laugh or start crying because they know these things, but they you know, literally do not have the the energy to make those decisions. Uh, the way I think of this is like think of the time that you were like the most you know sick in your life with the flu or you know whatever it happened to be, and how unmotivated you felt like to even get up and make a meal for yourself. And you know, I try to empathize and put myself in these people's shoes and think you know if i'm in that situation you know there's no way that you know i'm going to be checking all these you know 10 lifestyle boxes and and building myself out but the medication p- can be a great lever um i think another example of this would be uh, the glp1 agonists medications that are coming out for weight loss um and these have gotten you know very trendy i think a lot of people are using them off label um but for people who have dysregulation of this uh, endogenous glp1 which is a, a peptide that people produce naturally that basically stimulates satiety. Um, there is a phenotype, um, one of the four phenotypes of obesity is people who just do not feel full. So if I think of myself on you know the lowest calorie intake I've ever been on, like if I'm trying to lose some weight or lose some body fat, uh, that person could be even hungrier than me, even though they've eaten you know 3,000 calories. So it's not that they don't know that the pie that they ate or McDonald's is not the solution. It's that they, you know, are in a position where they can't seem to get a string of, you know, good days and good decisions going together. And I still have a bit of a theory that the Medications can be used, kind of like training wheels. In either case, to get people into good habits um, and then potentially maintain that. Not for everybody. Uh, certainly, the you know obesity societies and endocrinologists, obesity medicine physicians, would disagree with me there. Um, but I think that that could be a solution for some patients, uh, but certainly not universal.
0: Mm. Well, antidepressants were certainly great training wheels for me. And even though I'm very much big on all the lifestyle factors and ideally, you know, a medication not being for life, but of course, that's a reality for some people. But um, yeah, I'm. S- I'm certainly not against it. I think that what you're doing in terms of blending the lifestyle side of things into medicine um, is a really beautiful thing. Something that I would really love to touch on are those um, lifestyle factors. So you've mentioned lifestyle factors a while ago. So what are the number one foundations of health that everyone can apply for longevity, good cognition, all of that fun stuff?
1: Yeah, there was a really good paper on this uh, that came out of Harvard probably four or five years ago now, uh, and they had just identified five key factors, which I was really surprised by, um, but it was potentially adding about 10 years on average to someone's lifespan. Um, and then you know, in, in uh, concordance with that, you have an increase in health span, so you're healthier for longer as well. And I think it was about, you know, 10 years for women, maybe a little bit less for men. Um, But the five things are, you know, not smoking, avoiding excess alcohol, eating a healthy diet, getting plenty of physical activity, and then maintaining a healthy body weight. So, you know, it's not a super niche or unknown. These are things that we all know we can do. um, And they're just very difficult in our society. So, yep, not smoking. That's certainly getting much better. Um, they have, you know, medications and supplements now that can help people to, you know, quit smoking. And um, I do want to, you know, make make sure that people know that the nicotine itself isn't necessarily the most harmful portion of that. Um, nicotine can be addictive, but um, people will often kind of rationalize this like, well, I don't want to just you know trade one addiction for another because I'm using a nicotine patch or, or whatever it happens to be. Because I guess there is still some stigma around that. But uh, by eliminating all of those you know, carcinogens and the cigarette smoke that you're inhaling, you're going to be doing your lungs and your heart uh, a world of good. Um, same thing with the alcohol use. And it, it's really interesting to see it's more in vogue now for people to um, to not drink or to you know drink very lightly um, because they're like, hey, you know, I I think people come to a, a certain point in their life where they're like, you know, I don't want to wake up and feel like that again. So I'm going to you know, moderate myself. Um, and as far as the, you know, used to be some health benefits of alcohol that were kind of circulating. And I think the, the research was a bit misconstrued there. Um, what they had done was put uh, patients that were formerly alcoholics in the never drinking group and those people obviously have more health problems. So I think that confounded the data a bit. And any positive benefit from alcohol in my mind uh, comes from the social engagement that you have during that time. So, you know, a glass of wine plus socialization, you know, I think it's really the socialization that is, you know, doing the the brunt of the work there. And then, you know, if you have diet and exercise in place, then the body weight's gonna also just line right up with that. So there's a lot of different dietary patterns that people can adhere to. Um, It's not so much about chronically being on a diet, but finding what's sustainable for you. Because you you can write out a diet plan for anybody. It could be exactly the same. As long as you are hitting the calorie balance, then you're going to have that person lose weight. The question is, do they want to eat those six or 10 foods every single day for the rest of their life and the answer is probably no now because food is a very cultural thing it's about social bonding it's about enjoyment and it it's really about you know balance i mean There's a couple of stories that have circulated in the news about people losing weights on these terrible diets. Like Ten years ago, I remember reading about uh, the professor who went on a Twinkie diet to prove that he could lose weight eating Twinkies. And he lost weight eating Twinkies, and his cholesterol got better and all these sorts of things. That's not the approach that I take for any of my patients. Uh, But it just shows how important the, the calorie balance is. And usually people need to default more to Whole foods, so things that have uh, much more volume than caloric density. So, you know, thinking, you know, like a salad is obviously going to be much more filling than a small piece of cheesecake, even though the cheesecake is going to have many more calories. So, if people are eating, you know, things like fruits, vegetables, uh, whole grains, not everybody does great with grains, um, but it's really all grains that are getting blamed for the problem that refined grains are causing. So, looking at uh, this initiative put forward, like healthy people, twenty 2020 twenty to twenty twenty five, see that eighty to ninety percent of people not eating enough fruits and vegetables, eighty uh, percent of people not eating enough whole grains, eighty percent of people eating too many refined grains. So, this is just you know a case of you know you, well, you're blaming the whole grains for what the pop tarts and the doritos caused, as opposed to like these foods that we know have more fiber and are are more beneficial. So nobody's getting tricked by the Pop-Tart label that says it has seven vitamins and minerals and thinking it's a health food. If people know these things, it's just about the, the palatability, the availability and the convenience.
0: Mm, definitely. So first off, totally agree with you on that whole grains uh-huh. comment that you made. Eating bread in Australia versus eating bread in America is an extremely different experience for me. I can have like... I can have really fancy um, like sourdough from a bakery and s- stuff over here and be fine. If I go to a, like a, a takeout and have like a burrito, my t- tummy is just not okay. So feel you on that. But what I do really want to dive into is you mentioned it twice with regards to food and alcohol. That social engagement and that social engagement being a positive benefit. So when people are thinking about their health and well-being... Can you share some environmental factors that are actually going to help people improve their mindset or improve their well-being in general?
1: Yeah. I mean, looking at the like the physical environment itself, um, nature is a really interesting one. Um, so you know, whether you consider that part of the social environment or not, it, it does have a beneficial effect. And if you look at our society now, we have people that are clustered in urban environments and from an evolutionary standpoint, we are really not getting any signs of reassurance that the reassurance that the environment is safe. so you know you're you're walking down a street in a busy city, you're not hearing the birds singing, you're not hearing running water, all these sort of innate um, signs of safety and when people do go out and spend time in nature or even just listen to like birdsong, uh, going on a nature walk, uh, it decreases their stress response. So it's it's a really important part of stress management to spend time in green spaces. And there's you know tons and tons of literature to back this up. And uh, cities are leaning more into this now, and, and putting in more green spaces. Uh, and then as far as the like socialization with um, other human beings, uh, go on a nature walk together, of course. But um, there's going to be different levels to that for each person. Some people have zero burnout point for socialization. They could spend, you know, every waking moment with another person. Um, Other people, you know, they socialize and they kind of get their dose that's right for them. And then they want to, you know, have a little bit of their, you know, alone time because that's part of their, you know, stress management and decompression. So uh, it's not a one size fits all, but it is important to have social connections um, so that you are not, you know, isolated because we see, you know, the, the downside of this, the data and this when people increase in age and they have a very small or a non-existent social circle that their health and cognition uh, and all these quality of life markers are going to decline as well.
0: Mm. Have you ever had somebody who has social anxiety come to you and how do you recommend that they improve their like social environment to help help, help their health?
1: Yeah, there are a lot of people with uh, social anxiety and i uh, I hate to use the same analogy again, but the the training wheels approach um, can work as well there with uh, medications. Um, It can work with just increasing the amount of time. So uh, think of someone who has to give presentations for work. Um, and it you know, stresses them out. They, you know, are sitting there with their papers or their presentation. They're about to go up, and they feel their heart beating out of their chest. Palms are sweating, and that in turn triggers their mind to race, and it's just a, a feedback loop. Um, a medication that sometimes gets headlines because a lot of celebrities, uh, performers, even use this is propranolol. So, you know, that's a, a medication solution, and what it's going to do is slow that heart rate and, and blunt the sympathetic nervous response. So your, your fight or flight, you know, you're know you giving a presentation, you're not uh, running away from a tiger as the, the fight or flight nervous response analogy goes. Um, and that can help to, to blunt that. And then people spend time doing these things and not having their heart rate elevated and not feeling unwell. And then when they get used to it, they sort of desensitize and it becomes more normal. Um, and, and maybe these people just keep these things on hand for as needed use. Um, a natural alternative, because you know, I, I do a combination of medication and supplements, would be uh, theanine. Uh, and some people will even combine this with their you know, coffee if they get jitters or anxiety from coffee. Um, energy drink companies will occasionally put it in energy drinks to kind of mellow it out. So people can drink more energy drinks and not get anxious from them. Um, but the, the theanine can kind of calm that um, sympathetic nervous activity as well. So there's, you know, natural and uh, medical alternatives specifically for social anxiety, but it it really does come down to, you know, getting that repetition in at some point um, and not progressively like isolating yourself um, because that's going to, uh, you're going to be slipping backwards there as opposed to making progress.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that stress response is so important in so many ways. And I love that you help people with supplementation or medication there. Something that I've noticed that's pretty big on Instagram and TikTok at the moment is doing Pilates and what they call hot girl walks in um, in place of weightlifting and hits. Because, um, you know, obviously you do want to activate your sympathetic nervous system when you are lifting weights because you want the blood flow to go to your large muscle groups. So, do you have any thoughts or opinions on, you know, doing Pilates, yoga, and walking as opposed to more intense exercises when it comes to um, weight loss and stress management?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I think that. Anytime the question is, is there going to be some exercise or zero exercise? The answer is some. So, you know, whatever people are willing to do, um, I've had patients sell their couch, you get an exercise bike, you put that in front of their TV. That's not for everybody, but it's certainly effective. Um, For aerobic conditioning, I think that you can get a lot of progress from low intensity. um, Even, you know, brisk walking, you're going to get the heart rate up. It's going to be good for circulation. But there are some distinct advantages to resistance training um, and then also to doing some higher intensity aerobic work. So if you look Mm -hmm. at um, cognition being one of these things, uh, this paper just came out maybe a week or two ago. Uh, looked at cycling on a stationary bike and these people were doing something like an hour of low intensity versus just six minutes of intervals where they're, they're really pushing the heart rate. So depending on your age, that may be aiming for a heart rate of 160 or 180 or even 190, uh, somebody very young and and very fit. And what they found was that you actually got more uh, release of something called BDNF from the interval training And BDNF is, you know, sort of called fertilizer for the brain. It it keeps neurons healthy. Um, And this is also a mechanism that uh, antidepressants seem to work by, is that they increase levels of BDNF. Um, And it it seems like it takes about six weeks for that to happen. And that's when people start to really experience that, that sort of lift. So another advantage of like high intensity versus the aerobic, like steady state, like jogging for an hour, riding a bike for an hour. Uh, relates to arterial flexibility. So the ability of your blood vessels to dilate and contract uh, is going to be better augmented by some high intensity work. And it doesn't have to be a lot of time. So uh, I don't want somebody doing all high intensity work because that's going to set them up for injury. So that's why if you look at even the guidelines from the American Heart Association is going to say you know, there's a smaller time amount depending on the intensity of your exercise, because we don't want people actually overtraining. And the next thing you know, you've got you know, an Achilles tetanopathy and now you can't train and, you know, what do you mm. do now? Um, and then I think the other part was about resistance training specifically. And I think that that should be incorporated at least two days a week. Um, three, if you can, more is even better. Um, just for preserving, you know, bone mineral density and lean body mass. Um, the Pilates, could have a positive effect on lean body mass because when you are stretching muscle, that is still a stimulus for muscle, but it's not going to be applying a load to uh, the bones to stimulate um, them, keeping the the minerals in the bones and not having things like uh, bone resorption happening where your your body's pulling the calcium out and you're you're losing ground as you increase in age. So, the resistance training is going to be you know uh, light years ahead in in terms of bone density.
0: Mm. Do People need to have a certain amount of weight to receive those benefits for resistance training. I'm thinking specifically of body weight training. And, you know, doing body weight training personally for me for legs is very difficult for me to feel like I'm working. But with arms, yeah, push ups on my toes really, really hurt. So basically, how heavy do people need to lift to get these benefits?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and I think it goes down more to like what is challenging for that person, mm. um, and starting from there, but then incorporating progression to where you are. Like, let's say somebody can't even you know do a squat. Um, well, they need to be able to do a you know a body weight squat before they start you know adding up the weights, or um, same thing with any sort of uh, like a pressing movement or a pulling movement. So. I do really like having people focus on those compound movements where they're going to hit a lot of different muscles at the same time, mm. um, and that are going to be you know, somewhat functional. So you know, it's about the balance, the coordination, and um, even if you're not using particularly heavy loads, you're going to improve your uh, like muscular innervation. Your your nervous system is going to become more efficient, and you're going to be less likely to fall. Which is really, you know, like if someone had a guarantee that they would never fall. Yep, then we would probably be less worried about bone density. Um, but these things tend to correlate with one another and decline at the same time. So that's why we are kind of packaging them as a, a two-in-one. Um, mm. If people want to know kind of where they're at on this spectrum of bone density, sometime between 30 and 40, your bone density is going to peak. And then you start losing ground after that. Uh, for both men and women. So depending on where your peak is, you can see like how aggressive you need to be or if you're in a good place. Um, looking forward even, you know, something like 10, 20, 30 years if all things remain constant. Um, and this is a lot a lot of this is determined by your vitamin D receptor. Um but then there is a large degree of that that's modifiable by you know, like how much exercise resistance training somebody does early in their life leading up to that point.
0: Yeah. That's super interesting. So we're peaking between 30 and 40. That's fabulous. I've just turned 30. So I am stoked to hear that there's a peak.
1: <laughs> That's right. Um,
0: for, bone, for bone density, anyway. We're about to come to a close, James. And we do have a closing question. But before I ask you that, is there anything that you feel that you haven't shared on the podcast today that you really want to share with listeners?
1: Yeah, I think we got into a lot of great things. We talked about, you know, women's hormones, men's hormones, you know, things that I think are applicable for everybody. Um, and and just realizing that, you know, the way that the environment is set up, it, that the algorithm is sort of programmed against people. Um, you know, the easiest thing to do is to go eat fast food, processed food, and then be sedentary, you know, watch Netflix. So, you know, it's important for people to, you know, realize that, yeah, it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of time. Um, but you can, you know. Make small tweaks here and there, changes in your daily habits, and you can build towards better health. And regardless of what your starting state is, um, it's never too late to make improvements. So just, again, trying to inspire hope and uh, let people know that there's always things that they can do to improve their health.
0: I love that. That's full circle from your story, story with those eight break, broken bones inspiring hope all the way to inspiring hope no matter where you are in your journey to make any small tweak to get there. Now, we do have a final question. And that final question is, if you were speaking to your 20-year-old self right now, what advice would you give him?
1: Hmm, That's a good question. Uh, I would probably say to start getting blood work uh, just as a baseline. Uh, when I was, you know, 20 years old, even though I was you know, working in a hospital at that time, uh, I wasn't uh, monitoring my health beyond like uh, an annual physical. So, um, unfortunately, I don't have any like you know major red flags genetically for heart disease or, or things like that. Um, but that would be you know several years of you know time gained had I had you know those risk factors that I would have been exposed to. So, I, I think. You know, for myself, and then advice to you know other young people. You know, getting a sort of a, a baseline where you're looking at just beyond the, you know, standard lipid panel, CBC and CMP. You know, the basic blood work they get when they go to their doctor once a year uh, is a really good investment to make because then you have uh, this data. You you can catch things if they're happening early, and you know, the sooner you start. Uh, working against you know whatever your genetics gave you or whatever health problem you have, then the more dividends that's going to pay as you increase in age.
0: Note to self: get blood work done. <laughs> Wonderful, awesome. I love, love that. it. James, um, where can people find you?
1: Yeah, so my main platform is probably Instagram. So I'm at James O'Hara NP. Um, our clinic website is GilletteHealth.com. Yeah, so if people want to work with me directly or want to see what services we offer, they can check that out there. But I try to put out a lot of, you know, free to the public, high-quality health information topics that people are interested in. So if you're just following along for the reels or the posts, then I love that as well.
0: And I certainly love James's information as well. Specifically, there was a post recently on um, testosterone and lean muscle mass, which I found super interesting. Well, it's been wonderful to have you, James. Thanks for joining the podcast. Looking forward to following all your work. And for everyone listening at home or in the car, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day and keep shining.